Hey, deserving listeners, I thought I would answer patron emails. Let's get to it. This first email is from anonymous patron. She writes, I am a cis-hetero woman, and all my past talk therapists were also cis women. I have some fears around working with a male therapist, and I also wonder if it could be beneficial to work with a male therapist because of this. But I have a number of fears and worries about working with a male therapist. Worried it won't be as open. Fear of embarrassment when talking about menstrual cycles and sex. Shame of being a preoccupied crazy girl. The therapist having unconscious bias because of being raised in a patriarchal society where women aren't always seen as a whole person. Inherited trauma around how poorly women were raised in history by therapists and doctors. Fears about boundary crossings. Or even just scared I'll, I'll have a crush on my therapist. Are there thoughts in the therapeutic world on whether it would be helpful to have a male therapist in order to work with these fears and anxieties? End of email. Yeah, there's a fair amount of thoughts and research in the clinical world around this. And in a nutshell, there are five different considerations that I can think of. One is comfort. It's important to feel comfortable. And if you don't feel comfortable with male therapists, then why put yourself in an uncomfortable situation unnecessarily? So, you know, that's something to consider for sure. Two is identity overlap, meaning that you are looking for a woman because you're a woman and there's identity overlap in that way. In the same way, if a black person wants to feel comfortable in therapy or they want to feel like understood or they don't want to have to educate their therapist about what it's like to be black, then they'll look for another black therapist, another black person to work with. Women will often look for women therapy therapists, if you're gay or lesbian, if you're bi, if you're trans, if you're polyamorous, if you're, you know, any of the various different identities that are generally misunderstood by society, when you go to a therapist and your therapist doesn't share that identity, you run the risk of them also not understanding what it's like for you. There's plenty of people who, for example, are bisexual. They go to a therapist who is not bisexual, and the bisexual client will experience depression, misunderstanding, and mistreatment because the therapist has all the stupid ideas about bisexuality that society does. And so finding someone with similar identity can be helpful in terms of speeding therapy along, in terms of helping you to feel comfortable, in terms of not being oppressed in the therapy office, that sort of thing. I'd like to think that therapists are trained and supervised and intelligent and wise enough to avoid those kinds of identity oppression, but it happens all the time. Number three is goals. You know, what, what, are, what are your goals in therapy? If you're looking for a corrective experience regarding men, then maybe going to a male therapist would help with that. Maybe uh, dealing with the discomfort would be worth the benefit of actually experiencing a corrective experience with a man. You, I'm guessing, have had some traumas around men and when you talk with women, you can certainly heal from those traumas, but it can sometimes be accelerated or made more poignant if your therapist was male. 
Um, number four is possible complications. There might be just too many barriers to you working with a male therapist. Uh, my dog is barking <laughs> for a long time. I'm guessing someone is lingering a long time uh, at the doorstep. Uh, that My dog will bark as the person parks their car, gets out of their car. I'll just keep talking while my dog is barking. Uh, the person walks up the walkway. Sometimes the delivery person lingers at the front doorstep, takes a picture of the thing to send back to whoever they have to report back to that they did indeed re- you know, deliver it. Now they're walking back and they're going to their car and now they're gone and my dog's no longer barking. <laughs> uh, yeah, so number four reason to think about is possible complications. There might be too many barriers to deal with this, right? If Even if you're like, yeah, it might be good for me to work with a man therapist. But you know what? I'm going to have way too much shame and way too many fears and way too much erotic countertransference. For example, I know people who will avoid attractive therapists because they're afraid of erotic transference or just being distracted by how beautiful their therapist is. So, you know, these sorts of things are things to think about. And it's okay. It's not, there's nothing to be ashamed of by having a preference. Not at all. The last consideration is prejudice and assumptions. Are you making assumptions about what it would be like to work with a particular sort of therapist without having data? Uh, You know, assuming that, uh, let's just go over your worries here. You're worried that you won't be as open. Uh, I don't know if I read that right earlier. I think I might have read that wrong. But, you you know, you're worried that you won't be very open with a male therapist. Okay, maybe that'll happen. Maybe it won't. Your fear of embarrassment when talking about menstrual cycles and sex. Yeah, I mean, in all likelihood, there's going to be a little bit of additional embarrassment. But presumably, if you develop a close enough relationship with your therapist, those fears won't be as severe as you might think they they are. And what a wonderful opportunity to be validated and uh, have a corrective experience with a man regarding those issues. Uh, You say, shame about being a preoccupied crazy girl. This one, I assume you would not experience. If you went to a therapist who was a male and you bonded with that person and that therapist was a good therapist, uh, I imagine you would not be worried about revealing your preoccupied attachment style to that therapist. Uh, I'm guessing that, again, you have traumas with men. There, It's not uncommon for some people uh, to have, a, you know, 100% negative experiences with a particular group of people. For example, uh, you know, there are some women who have never had a good interaction with a man or a male of any kind. Every single man they have interacted with, it has either been neutral at best and at worst been extremely abusive. And so it's not unusual to think, it wouldn't be strange to think that a person like that would have a lot of fears and assumptions about what it would be like to actually work with a male therapist. Um, You also say the therapist having an unconscious bias due to patriarchy. Yeah, that could happen, but that can happen with women too. It's not like women don't live in a patriarchal society, and plenty of women will perpetuate the patriarchy for sure. 
can men be more likely to do that? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's something to think about for sure. And to all you clinicians out there, including myself, we all need to think about where our, you know, issues around that are, which are constantly playing out. You say that you would have fears around boundary crossing. Yeah. And it's statistically more likely to happen when you have a male therapist and a woman client, but they're extremely unlikely to happen. Uh, but they do happen. So, you know, it, however low the chance is, is it worth avoiding that whole thing, be, you know, by, by just avoiding a male therapist? You know, maybe it is. Can a woman therapist also cross boundaries? Absolutely, and that it happens. Just statistically, it happens less often. Less often. Um, so there's there's some prejudices. People will sometimes you didn't say this on Anonymous Patreon, but, but sometimes people will assume that men therapists can't be very em- empathic, can't be very nice, can't be very compassionate, and that is completely not the case. I have trained hundreds and hundreds of therapists and i have found no gender association when it comes to compassion and i hope that when you listen to me and bob talk to each other and about our clients that it's clear that men can have compassion deep deep compassion deep deep understanding of emotions it's a a thing in our society that everyone in our society is socialized to shame emotions and to downplay compassion and to increase one's hate of other people. Everyone is taught to do that. Women are taught a little less to do that than men, but women are taught that as well. And I spend an equal amount of time with my women students as I do with my man students around emotional awareness, emotional non-stigmatizing empathy, compassion. So uh, I have found no gender association in that way. Everyone, when they cry in class, will apologize regardless of gender, meaning that they have internalized messages around crying as a shameful, weak, terrible thing to do. Everyone struggles with uh, uh, increasing their compassion. Every single trainee I work with I have to go through several phases of helping them to show, to connect with their compassion and show it. Uh, Just while I'm on this topic, all the trainees that I've worked with will have deep compassion and empathy baseline. But when they're terrified as a novice therapist, they're trying desperately to act like a therapist. And in the process of doing that, They suppress their authenticity and their compassion for other humans. And it takes months, if not years, for novice therapists to reconnect with their authenticity and love for other human beings and let it show in the therapy office. It takes a long time uh, because there's, I don't know, there's just this assumption that to be a good therapist, you have to be very technical. You have to tinker with people's minds. You have to be very theoretically based or something. And evidence doesn't show that. And I'm constantly beating this into my novice therapist's heads that you know, they'll, if there's always this statement that they'll say, and again, every trainee I've worked with runs into this, 
they'll they'll be consulting on a case and they'll be saying so you know i was talking with this client and you know i'm trying all my different techniques and i'm you know trying my theory which i barely understand and and so sometimes the client just talks and talks and i find myself you know i'm just listening you know i don't know what i'm doing and i'll i'll stop them and i'll say okay let's analyze what you just said you just said I'm just listening as if that's a bad thing. <laughs> like, and then I always remind them. So when you go to therapy, because they all do, because they should, because they're therapists and two, they're required in my program. I say, when you go to your therapist, do you want your therapist to tinker with you? Do you want your therapist to use theory on you? Or do you want your therapist to effing listen to you and validate you and understand you and tell you that you're, uh, a good person, regardless of the way you're being treated. Do you do you want someone to listen? Okay, uh, you know everyone nods their head. Yeah, of course, I want my therapist to listen. So, are you just listening when you are listening to your client and validating them and being there for them and having compassion for them and normalizing their experience and for once in their life making them feel like they matter? making them feel like someone can actually spend the time to hear about their experience and not interrupt them and not try to find a solution to their problem? Is that just listening? And then I pull out books from behind me. I have these books on hand. And I flip to these chapters that are you know, rigorous, researched, evidence-based uh, chapters around how, quote-unquote, just listening is the most important thing you can do as a therapist. You know, everyone, most therapists understand the research around the relationship and that it is way more important than whatever theory you're using. And a major important element of the relationship with client and therapist is listening, specifically the topic, the psychological research topic of quote-unquote listening, empathy, self-disclosure, attachment, alliance, uh, getting feedback, relationship ruptures, counter-transference management, all these things that are really bread and butter to psychodynamic, interpersonal, and humanistic therapists. And it is much more important, and meaning that it, when it's good, when it's going well, when it's optimal, outcomes are much more likely to be positive than they are if you're really killing it in the theory area. And they've actually broken this down into percentages, which I won't go into, but you know, it should just be noted that the percentage effect that a good relationship has on the outcomes of therapy is much higher than the percentage effect of having a good grasp of theory and utilizing it well. Not that theory doesn't matter, because it does, obviously, but it's much more important to focus on a relationship. And it is theoretical in the humanistic, interpersonal, psychodynamic world to focus on the relationship. Anyway, so uh, how did I get on that topic? Yeah, so anonymous patron, If uh, in, in, in uh, conclusion, it, y you're worried about working with a male therapist. You're really comfortable with women therapists. So number one is thinking about your comfort. Just, you know, what do I want to feel? How do I want to feel when I show up to therapy? Do I want to be anxious or do, do I want to be comfortable? And that applies to all sorts of things, whether it's 
identity like gender or other kinds of things. Number two is identity overlap. And uh, sometimes it is, it is helpful to find someone that shares as many identities as you do. But there are other considerations like what are your goals in therapy? That's number three. Uh, maybe you're actually trying to engineer a corrective experience with a particular kind of person. Number four, or another goal that sometimes people will cross, will, will you know, find a a person of a different identity is to learn from them. Some some women will work with me in the past because they want to find out: is this a man thing or is this just a thing? <laughs> you know, they'll they'll want to get the male perspective, and so as a male therapist, I will you know therapeutically provide that. Number four is maybe there are just too many complications, too many barriers to deal with that, you know, the shame, the fear, the erotic kind of tra- the erotic transference. And number five is just, you know, dispelling any prejudice or assumptions that you're making regarding the other sort of therapist and making sure that you're not making assumptions that aren't that aren't true. Okay. So let's move on. All right, this next email is from patron Lucy from the Netherlands. She writes, Previously, I asked you a question about limerence. What I meant is love that is more like an extreme obsession. I've been dealing with this extreme obsession since I was 11 years old. I'm 16 now. I have had it for four people, lasting two years or longer. No psychologist has ever been able to help me with this extreme obsession or limerence. This fascination and idealization with people is disturbing and affects my life greatly. I was obsessed with a woman whom I wasn't even in love with. My worst obsession started in 2017 with a mental health worker, which I am preoccupied with again after a breakup. I've been abused as a child, and I feel like my life is directed solely towards other people. Can you give me an explanation for this and the pathology? End of email. So... Uh, I think patron Lucy had asked maybe during a Q&A or something about limerence, and I didn't really understand, so that's why patron Lucy is following up here. So let me explain what limerence is and what it is not. Limerence is not good or bad. It's generally a good thing, though. This is when we have a crush on someone. It's romantic attraction. Some might think of it as love at first sight or just liking someone, craving someone. Or in more extreme cases, limerence is that infatuation phase that you go through in the beginning of a relationship. And we evolved to have this experience, clearly. We clearly evolved limerence as a way of facilitating bonding. In order to cram two human beings together such that they will want to be with each other and watch out for each other and want to spend time with each other and eventually copulate and procreate together. You need to have a emotional experience that facilitates that. And limerence uh, definitely facilitates that, right? So we evolved this experience to help us procreate. Now, the internet has changed the meaning of lim- of limerence. And to be clear, limerence is a clinical term, and I just described it. The internet, however, has changed the meaning basically to what you're using. You're, you're using the word obsession, and that's a much more accurate word for it. Because limerence is usually associated with uh, the feeling that you get that 
causes you to want to be with someone. And sometimes it's unrequited. Sometimes – so just a side note on the unrequited. There's certain words that we have in the English language that we only use in certain circumstances. And maybe I'm wrong about this. But I only hear unrequited when we're talking about unrequited love or unrequited crush or something. We never, we never hear people say unrequited something else like unrequited, uh, you know, like – Hey, I want to give you a apple, and then it's unrequited apple because <laughs> the other person isn't giving you an apple. The other thing is you never hear the word requited love. It's only unrequited. It's never requited. Like me and my wife, we have requited love for each other, but you never hear people. Anyway, point is, is that the internet has changed the word limerence to basically mean obsession. And the internet should just use the word obsession. Uh, obsession is a perfectly good word. We have, we have the concept. It's a ton of research around it. It's a clinical word. It's uh, the experience of having intrusive thoughts. You can't stop thinking about something. It's an unhelpful preoccupation. And it causes a lot of problems in people's lives. It really interferes. It causes a lot of pain. It is a lot of unwanted preoccupation. It's awful. Obsession is awful. Obsession is uh, clinical. Obsession is terrible in the, you know, with obsessive compulsive disorder. Now you can be mildly obsessed with something anyway. So you ask patron Lucy from the Netherlands an explanation for your experience with this. Maybe you could say obsessive limerence, I suppose, but you'd have to insert the word obsessive in there. And you're wondering what my explanation is for that. And I don't know. I obviously, <laughs> I can't analyze you over the internet, but I can provide some hypotheses. So if someone was suffering from years of obsessive limerence or obsess obsession with other people, then one avenue I would take in assessment is, is this person prone to obsessions in general and compulsions in general, either biologically or a very specific version of OCD, or is it a habit that they're going through? Is it a phase? Because certainly a lot of teenagers will experience a, uh, it's, it's not uncommon for young people to experience intense obsession with other people and learn from that experience such that when they're older, it, it's mitigated by their wisdom that they've developed. It's not unusual for a 13-year-old to just have a, an, an intense crush on another person and to have it not go well. But that's part of life, and it sucks, and you learn from it. <laughs> uh, but it's also possible that someone experiencing these sort of obsessions might actually have clinical OCD or a form of it. The other hypothesis that I would pursue would be that you talk about being abused. And when we're abused as children, it creates the need for a coping strategy. We need to figure out some way as a child to cope with the abuse as it is happening. And there are many different coping strategies available to us, all of the various different schemas, all the personality disorders, all the defenses. And some of those include things that we would uh, – that would result in later in life experiencing obsessive limerence. Um, as a child, if you assumed that you couldn't survive on your own, 
you might be being abused and you're just thinking, okay, I, I need to find someone else to focus on that will save me from this, you know, sort of my, my savior is out there somewhere and it, a savior attachment wise, savior physical wise, anyway. And some people will develop upon being abused, the fantasy that others will save them from their pain because that's what gives them hope to get through the day. They might, as a child, focus on gaining the approval of others or distracting from the pain through an obsession or assuming that other people will love them back. There is kind of a thread of narcissism sometimes within obsessive limerence in that surely this person will love me back. Surely if I just prove to this person that I'm a good person, they will love me. There's a bit of of narcissism in there in that there's a grandiose version of the self being expressed and this lack of understanding that other people have their own mind and that just because you love someone does not mean that they necessarily love you back. Now, patron Lucy, you don't seem to be exhibiting that, but that's just some of the other pathways I would imagine to obsessive limerence. But the things that I would, you know, talk about, Lucy, you said you've been to, you say no psychologist has been able to help you with this. So I'm guessing you've been to at least two psychologists. I would find one that understands this and I might screen them. I'm going to be like, so here's my problem. I have obsessive limerence. How would you help me? And just interview them, make sure that they understand you. It's not a complicated thing to understand, frankly. So either your psychologist didn't understand you or you didn't have a good relationship with those people or they were incompetent some way. But I would find it unusual that if you tried out a few more therapists that you wouldn't find someone that would understand you and be able to help you. So, you know, keep trying. All right, this next email is from upper-tier patron Lizette from San Diego. She writes, Hi, Dr. Kirk. I'm applying for MFT programs, marriage and family therapy programs, for fall of 2021. I have heard that these programs are much different than what we do in undergrad. How can I mentally prepare for the rigor of these classes? What does the day in the life of a marriage and family therapy student look like? End of email. Yeah, so... Well, congratulations, Upper Tier Patron Lizette, for answering the call, the heroic call, the noble call of helping married, you know, couples and families and individuals and children and adults such that you can actually improve their lives. So very, very wonderful to hear that, Lizette. I'm I'm so happy you're entering the field. You say, I've heard these programs are much different than what we do in undergrad. Yeah. They it's almost like a different thing. I mean, an undergrad in psychology, and I don't know what specifically your undergrad was, but it's usually a lot of research science and social psychology things and very broad kinds of things, you know, classical conditioning, all that kind of stuff. And then you go to a marriage family therapy program and you're talking about your own childhood. You're developing ways to analyze your countertransference. You're talking about clinical skills. You're talking about psychopathology in a much more real way. And so, uh, yeah, undergrad and, and postgrad work is very, very different in general on average. You ask, how can I mentally prepare for the rigor of these classes? Well, you can't. <laughs> People ask me this all the time. They're like, I'm worried about going to grad school. How do I prepare? There's nothing you can do. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> uh, I mean, aside from 
working on your writing skills, uh, maybe that if there's some if there's anything anyone could do is well, there's two things: go to therapy, start early, and really start getting into your childhood because that's going to come up as a student in all likelihood. The program will focus on it. The other thing is is make sure you know how to write academically. And there's a lot of different ways, there are a lot of different styles of writing academically. Now, Lizette, it sounds like you recently were an undergrad, which probably means your writing skills are pretty good. It's only a problem when I have students in, in my classes who haven't been in school for like, you know, 10, 20, 30 years, and their writing skills are just really, really bad. So, you know, making sure you know how to write an APA, making sure you understand how to format a paper well, because, you know, there are professors who get real upset when you don't use APA form formatting and this sort of thing. So just, just getting to know that. But, you know, you don't need to because it's not like you're going to be alone. I mean, all your classmates are going to suck at those things, too. And so for the most part, I just say, you know, enjoy your life prior to graduate school. Try to you know, capitalize on the free uh, time and the free mental space you have, <laughs> because once you enter graduate school, it's all over. It's your entire life is dominated by your studies, and you know you're you're not going to have a life, or you're going to have a lot less of a life. And so, you know, until fall, which is you know September October time, um, enjoy yourself as best you can. You, the other thing you ask is, what is the day-to-day -day life of a marriage and family therapy student look like? And I love this question. I've never been asked this, but I know how to answer this question because I was a marriage and family therapy student in the 90s, not too long ago, uh, possibly before you were born, Lizette. But to me, it wasn't that long ago. I can remember it very well. And obviously, for 25 years or so, I've been working with students uh, and know their day-to-day -day lives very well because graduate school is tends to have that you know like for the past nine months I've only worked with six I mean I teach these other kind of one-off classes but for the most part for the past nine months I've only been working with three students or sorry six students so I get to know them very well <laughs> like my I'm a full-time professor so just you know kind of Mull, mull this over. I'm a full-time professor and I only have six students for nine months as a full-time professor. That's, that's what graduate school is like. It's a lot of focused concentration on, you know, particular students. It's, it's not like undergrad where you might have literally a thousand students in a class. When I was at the University of Washington and I took Psych 101, there were literally a thousand students in the, or maybe even more than a thousand students in that class. Anyway, so, you know, what is the day-to-day -day life? Well, obviously, there's a lot of different sort of lives that people live. But if I was to draw some parallels, you're in graduate school, and usually people are working. Sometimes people, so it all depends on if you're working, if you're married, if you have kids. So we can all imagine that kind of stuff. And then in your free time, you are constantly worried. Well. All the time, you're constantly worried about assignments that are coming up. You're worried about, you know, making sure you read the readings, making sure you read them well enough. You're worried about the upcoming papers, or you're worried about particular deadlines, or you're worried about a presentation, or you're worried about something that you said in class, 
and you're worried that you might have said something stupid in class and you're beating yourself up for it, or you're looking around at your fellow students and you feel like an imposter while everyone looks like they know what they're doing. Um, I actually had this when I started out, mostly because I was an imposter at the age of 24, and I, I didn't even really know what the word empathy meant. I remember when we talked about the concept of empathy, I was like, empathy, what? I've heard of sympathy, but what is empathy? I'm, and everyone in the class knew what it meant. Uh, Bob was there, if you know Bob. He was in the class, and he he had already worked in mental health and had been in a lot of therapy and was a little older than me. And he just seemed like he knew everything about mental health, and I knew nothing. I, I just felt like – anyway, so – You'll do that. You'll look around at the classmates. You'd be like, oh, my God, she's so, you know, one of your classmates, oh, she's so smart. She knows everything. And I'm so stupid. I'm completely lost. And you'll be intimidated by your professors and you'll be worried about their disapproval. And you'll hear them talk about things and you'll be utterly confused with the readings. Half of the material, it'll be in English, but you won't understand what it's talking about. It seems to be referring to things that you're just, you just don't even know what's happening. So there's all that horribleness. And you'll turn in a paper and you'll think, it, this is a terrible paper. And then you get it back and it's only praise. And you're like, oh, I guess it wasn't such a terrible paper. Or you get it back and there's some notes, you know, like nine positive comments and one negative thing. And all you focus on is the negative thing. And then depending on your personality, you might actually go up to the professor and say, I disagree with your feedback, even though you're a professor of 25 years and know a lot more than me. I am narcissistic as a student and think I know better than you do. Um, <laughs> um, anyway, so day to day life is a lot of anxiety a lot of being up in your head, a lot of imposter syndrome. And I spent a lot of time with my students trying to get rid of that. I can never fully get rid of it. Um, you know, I've had students who, uh, well, years later, they'll tell me, there was this one time in class when I was in your class and you, you were really nice. You, you told me a lot of positive things, but then you told me one negative thing and I went home and cried for two days, and I was really close to dropping out of the program. And, you know, I hear these stories, and I think, my God, people do not take your your professor's words so seriously. <laughs> like, and, and this is one of the things I go over with a lot of novice people, is what makes you believe that you're supposed to be good as a therapist already? That I, I I draw this this you know uh, curve on the on the board, and I say, so after 25 years of being in the field, so you know you do a learning curve, right? And it's always going up, but it, it you know sort of flattens out, sort of plateaus a little bit as you as you age. And I'll say at 25 years, I'm still learning, right? And, and I sort of get confirmation. At, you know, just because I've been in the field for 25 years doesn't mean that I'm, I, I've learned everything, right? And I get confirmation. Yeah, of course. Okay. So, uh, but I've learned a crap ton in 25 years. Can I get an amen on that? Okay. So I am somewhere on this curve. Let's say I'm halfway up the curve. So out of 100, I'm at, I'm at 50 after 25 years. Okay. So let's extrapolate back. To when I was in your position and I was in graduate school. Well, I would have been just barely a two out of a hundred. 
So if a hundred is knowing everything that you could ever know about psychology and psychotherapy, and I'm at a 50, which sounds like high to begin with, but just go with me on that. Then when I was in graduate school, I was at a one or a two, maybe a three. Okay. All y'all are the same. You are a two out of a hundred. I'm a 50 out of a hundred. So one, you shouldn't compare yourself to me. And two, you will be me or surpass me when you get to 25 years into the field. And three, stop beating yourself up for not knowing things. Stop assuming that you're supposed to already be a great therapist and you're supposed to know everything that's narcissistic to believe and completely delusional. Why go to graduate school? Why gain experience? Why have post-grad supervision if everyone is already supposed to be a fantastic clinician by in the first quarter of of graduate school and i get some chuckles and i feel like i get a little bit of ground with my students when i when i yell at them this like this i don't yell at them but you know what i'm saying and it, it because every student assumes or a lot of them just assume like well if i get negative feedback from a professor i'm a loser well what did you expect that all professors would say, my God, you're perfect. You don't even need to be in this class. Everything you do is awesome. Now, I have a, a, a theory, and people have you know, put this forth before me, that graduate students, generally speaking, their entire lives have done well in school. Uh, otherwise, they probably wouldn't have attempted graduate school. And so when they were in third grade, when they were in 10th grade, when they were in college, they were a good student and they got a lot of compliments and a lot of self-esteem about, about being top of the class. Not always top of the class, but, you know, proficient in school. Not all the students, but many of them. And then they go to graduate school and now you're just one of many excellent students. And you, you're not, and in psychology, particularly psychotherapy and marriage and family therapy, there's very little evidence that you're doing well as a student. There's very little evidence that you're doing well as a therapist. When you're taking a class on math or you're taking a class on history or you're taking a class on psychology 101, there's a very clear demarcation between those that are getting an A versus a B versus a C. In my university, we don't give grades. We give narrative evaluations. Uh, it, it, it stands to reason that to give an A is a bit of a misnomer in that, look, we're all adults here and you're not here to get an A. What you're here is to learn. And so as a professor at the end of the quarter, I'm going to comment on what you learned and what you need to learn and what your strengths are and what your weaknesses are. To just give you a B or a C doesn't really help, right? And also when you have this whole obsession around A, B, C, D, F, students become obsessed with getting the points to get the grade instead of learning. And so as a competency-based program, and we've been, been this way for decades, we try to get students away from that mindset and toward a mindset of competencies and toward, toward a mindset of individualized learning. You know, where are you when you're learning and making sure you work towards that. Now, the other thing is, as graduate students in my program, they don't need to be encouraged to learn. They're all desperate to learn, and they're very, very hardworking students. So uh, usually, for me, it's just a matter of getting out of their way and, and, and helping them to just go along their own motivation. Anyway, 
So uh, a lot of anxiety, a lot of imposter syndrome. What else would the day-to-day life of an MFT student look like? Uh, Talking with other students, if you want. Talking with your advisor, if you want. Talking with your professors, if you want. Trying to get into classes can be a pain in the butt. Trying to manage your transcript, making, you know, uh, well, most most graduate programs are in a cohort model, and so you just have to take whatever classes they tell you to take. My At my university, students are allowed to take whatever, cl- for the most part, whatever classes they want to every quarter. And so students at my university have a have a, this j- extra job they have to fulfill of making sure they don't mess up their transcript, which can become a problem. That's why you talk with your advisor. But anyway, um, a lot of self-exploration, a lot of stress. I always talk with people in their first quarter and I say, by about week five, you're going to have a headache or you're going to have some kind of physical symptom as a result of being in graduate school and being in my class. And I know a lot of you will think, ah, not me, but come week five, you're going to have that headache. Week six, maybe you're going to have sort of academic overload, emotional overload, um, a lot of your childhood issues are going to emerge. There's just going to be a lot of stuff that's going to happen. And just prepare for that. Have a support system. The other th- thing I tell students is, in all likelihood, you're the sort of people that people go to when they're in pain. And you're the, you're the good listener. You're the, the maternal one. You're the, you're the person who helps people. Well, all that has to flip around a 180 when you enter graduate school because you're going to be the one in pain. You're going to be the one stressed out, and you are not going to have the capacity to listen to everyone. And so you have to now call in all those favors and say, okay, I've I've been the listener for the past 10 years in this friendship. Now you're going to be the listener for the next three years while I'm in graduate school because I'm not going to have extra time to listen to yet another person. And two, I'm going to be in a lot of stress, and you have to help me. And I get limited success with that speech to students because so many of therapists were martyrs or were the self-sacrificial types when they were young and throughout their life and have a really hard time being vulnerable and really hard time depending on others and and have a really hard time uh, forcing other people to listen to them. And so... Uh, uh, so, you know, that's another thing you can do for yourself, Lizette. All right, let's take a break. When we get back, let's continue answering emails. Hey, Deserving Listeners, as you know, I'm constantly recommending that people go to therapy. We all need therapy from time to time. One of the options available that is definitely worth checking out is BetterHelp.com. So if you're looking for a therapist, I would give it a try by going to BetterHelp.com slash Kirk. Make sure you use the slash Kirk because you get 10% off your first month and it helps us out. I get a lot of emails from you saying that you're looking for a therapist. As you watch these videos, I know many of you have been motivated to find your own therapist, but I know it can be really hard to find a good one to work with. Like I said, one of the options available to try is betterhelp.com slash Kirk. And you should know that this service is available to clients worldwide, which is amazing. I've been told that you can start communicating with your therapist in under 24 hours. You can message with your counselor anytime. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. And I've been told that it's often less expensive than in-person therapy. So go to betterhelp.com slash Kirk to get 10% off your first month of therapy today. (music) 
All right, so I took a second to check what was delivered, and the dog was barking at a person who delivered a box that contained some command strips, you know, those Velcro things that you can put up on the wall, you know, you can hang pictures and stuff without using nails. And during the pandemic, I've been spending a lot of time decorating the house because I'm spending a lot of time here and I have time on my hands to think about such things. Uh, last night, I actually hung a bunch of pictures in our living room. I have a picture of Eternal Sunshine of Spotless Mind, Princess Bride, Empire Strikes Back, and uh, Clockwork Orange, and Game of Thrones. And I also spent a lot of time online trying to find the perfect poster slash hangable thing on the wall for those things. And so I got some I ran out of command strips, and so I bought some more. And I also bought some double-sided tape because the Game of Thrones poster that I bought, I was putting it in a frame, and it was real wrinkly. You could, when you looked at it in a certain light, you could see all these wrinkles, and and so I ran out of double-sided tape. Or actually, I had double-sided tape, but it was really old, and I couldn't get it to actually unpeel without like disintegrating. And so I bought some more double-sided tape, and I also bought some new. Bluetooth headphones because uh, I, whenever I listen to podcasts, I actually, I don't like earbuds because I don't know, there's something about putting earbuds in my ear that it's either uncomfortable or they fall out of my ear really easily. I don't know. I don't know if I have weird ears or something. Plus, there's times when I just want to sort of take them off really quickly, and, and I don't want to, you know, gingerly take these two tiny little things that can get lost out of my ears. Anyway, so I wear these. The, they look like um, the sort of headphones you would wear if you were working at a call center because they have that long microphone that actually comes out from the headphone because I also will use it if I'm talking on the phone for a long time. Um, so I'm listening to my podcast, I'm doing the laundry, and then I have to talk with a client. I don't have to talk with a client, but then I have, I have a client session or a session with a supervisee, and I, I just pull down the little microphone, and I talk, in, and I'll walk around in public with that thing. <laughs> so I, I, people must think I am just walking away from my job at the call center, but I don't care. I, I find it to be fine. <laughs> But anyway, I always have to buy new ones of these because my head is so big that I break a lot of headphones. There, There's, you know, this is sort of a first world problem, but to my fellow big headed listeners out there, you know what I'm talking about. You try to find a hat and none of them fit. I go into a hat store and I, I like shopping for various things, and I want a, I want a good hat. I, you know, I was at Mardi Gras earlier this year, and I went to a store, and I was like, everyone's wearing all these like Mardi Gras hats. i got to get a Mardi Gras hat. And none of the hats in the entire place fit me, and so I had to settle for a hat that was a size too small, and it was really shoved on top of my head anyway. So that doesn't feel good. Or when I'm renting skis and I have to rent a helmet, sometimes that works out because sometimes people wear helmets over their hats. But anyway... Or headphones or glasses. Glasses is another thing. Um, in order to get mo- 99%, no, because I've been wearing glasses since I was you know, a child, and shopping for glasses is this major pain in the butt because literally, I'm not joking, 99 plus percent of glasses do not are not optimized for large heads. They're optimized for either average size heads or small heads. 
And so they just don't make large glasses, you know, in the same way that you have like a big and tall uh, store. Uh, there's some people waking up to this idea online of just like, you know, big headed people glasses. <laughs> and when I played football, when I, I, I had a hard time finding a helmet that would fit me. Usually it was me and like one of the linemen with no neck that would have to get a helmet special special delivered that would fit our large noggins and even then it wouldn't it would be a little bit too small for my head causing like indents from the padding on the inside of the helmet anyway so i ordered a new you know set of headphones because earlier this week it 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 just well so for a while the structure so you know the the band that goes over your head it had already basically snapped but I just lived with it because I was like, well, th these are always going to snap. And then it finally kind of gave loose. And so it wasn't working anymore. And so I, I just bought a, a new pair. Anyway, <laughs> that's what the talk was barking at. All right, let's go on to another email. Um, upper tier patron Avery from Canada says, I know you've touched on the mentality of conspiracy theories, but what about religious people? Is it possible that a belief in religious aspects can be seen as delusion or a psychological diagnosis? What is the difference between the psychology of someone in a cult or someone who is religious? How does this extend to people that believe they're having religious experiences like hearing God, angels, etc.? End of email. Yeah, so let's talk about religion versus delusion and also cult versus religion. But let's talk about religion versus delusion first. The DSM actually addresses this, not sufficiently in my opinion, but they, they do address it in that when you have delusions or hallucinations, they need to have the following criteria. They need to be deemed bizarre, meaning that if you believe that someone is reading your thoughts, that's just not possible, or if you believe that you're an alien from the planet Zanzadar, you know, it's just like, whoa, you, you'll hear people with some very strange delusions, or they'll believe that they were once a flea that transformed into a human, or, you know, you'll hear some very interesting delusions. And so it needs to be deemed, but you hear this word deemed bizarre. So they, the DSM actually includes this word because what is the definition of a bizarre thought? Well, it's what's deemed bizarre, meaning that an assessor that can differentiate between bizarre and non-bizarre will designate it as bizarre. But it's kind of arbitrary, right? Because what if someone had a belief that seemed bizarre to some people but not to others, you know? All right, the other thing is the belief or the thought needs to be clearly implausible, you know, it's implausible that a flea transforms into a human. It's implausible that people can read your thoughts. It's implausible that the FBI is targeting you, you know, or it's not likely, you know. The other criteria is that it's not understandable to same culture peers. So this is an interesting uh, note here is that if you believe something, but and that seems weird to you. So say you have a client from Cambodia or you have a client from, I don't know, just some other part of the world that you're not from, and they have some belief that to you is deemed bizarre and clearly implausible, but it is very understandable to same culture peers. 
that people from their uh, area will go, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, like one of the things, and I don't know if they still have this, but in Japan and maybe Vietnam, I, I remember hearing, this is 20 years ago, I remember hearing about a lot of men would think that people could take away their penises. And even though they still had their penises, they had this delusion that their penises had been stolen. And when we studied these people, a lot of them were not, quote unquote, were not deemed to be delusional, that they were suffering from an, an understandable uh, reaction or an understandable, implausible thought or belief that a lot of other people in that culture also believe. So why would this happen? Well, one is, is that when you're stressed out, people, we seem to turn towards culturally acceptable ways of expressing our unconscious stress. One one example is that in uh, Western society 100 years ago, it was much more acceptable in society or much more understandable that when you were stressed out, you might go numb or you might go blind. You might you know, become paralyzed from the waist down or you might lose the ability to use your arms or something. And then it was deemed to be a conversion, meaning that it was a psychogenic reaction to stress. And then once the person was given psychotherapy, and in fact, the very first client of Freud and Breuer had conversions that were labeled as, uh, you know, histri histrionic, but, or hysteria. But the point is, is that in Western society today, it's not as prevalent because people don't uh, ex tend to express their stress in that way. But there are other cultures around the world where they do. So the point is, is that we are influenced by our societal understanding of how to express mental uh, stress and also that when we have things that are um, understandable within that culture, then we don't label it as delusion because we, we would label it more as a culturally uh, congruent way of expressing something. So if someone believes that their penis was stolen, maybe that is a culturally normal way of expressing your fears of medical problems or your fears of emasculation or your fears of being impotent or something like that. Anyway, so the belief has to be uh, – you know, under has to be not understandable to the same culture peers. So, for example, if you had someone in a religion who believed that you could talk to God, uh, well, let's take people who speak in tongues. I don't know if you've ever seen this behavior before, or maybe done it. That people in church will have the Holy Spirit. I think this is how it goes. The Holy Spirit overcomes them. And then they speak in this, what sounds to be gibberish, you know, and they believe, these people, that that is the Holy Spirit overcoming them, and then they are speaking the language of God or something, or some ancient language or something like that. And so if you didn't know about that behavior and you saw someone doing that isolated from their cultural peers, you would say, that's weird. And you, if you went up to them and asked them like, what are you doing? They're like, Oh, well, the Holy spirit has overcome me and I'm speaking the language of the gods or what I can't remember exactly how they explain it, but something along those lines. And you would say, well, that's bizarre. It's implausible. This person is delusional. But if you understood that they come from a cultural group that 
absolutely 100% believes this and sanctions it, then it, it's no longer considered a delusion because it's, it's a belief system within a group of people. So you understand that, that difference. Um, also, that it has to uh, not be a culturally sanctioned response pattern, meaning that if someone dies, for example, in some cultures, it's believed that that person is still with you, okay? And, or that it's normal to see that person walking around with you after the death. And so you might talk to someone and, and if you're not from that culture and, you know, you have a client and they sit down and like, yeah, you know, my mom is sitting right next to me right now. And you're like, oh, you know, that's, that's weird. It's not plausible. I, I, I don't, I, what's going on here? Is there a delusion? But then you find out from their religion or their culture that a lot of people believe that, that when someone dies close to you, they will walk with you uh, for a certain amount of time or they'll occasionally check in with you. And not in a vague sense. They're literally in the room with you, sitting next to you on the couch, like watching TV with you, that kind of thing. So you need to know before assessing whether or not it is technically a a DSM delusion or hallucination, you need to understand someone's culture and where they're coming from. And but the most important criteria that the DSM lays out all the time is that it needs it needs to cause distress. It needs to be a problem in their life. So someone could have very strange beliefs that don't make any sense, that are implausible, that aren't in line with culture. But if it doesn't cause any distress, then it by definition is not a disorder for the most part. It needs to cause problems with their relationships, with their uh, well-being, with their work, with you know something about their life have, has to be falling apart due to the uh, belief system that isn't in line with quote-unquote regular beliefs within that culture. Uh, let's take, for example, the belief that the FBI is controlling the neighbor's dog. I actually had a client who believed this. So believing that the FBI or the CIA, some government agency, is controlling the dog that lives next door to me and the dog is barking as a way of signaling to the client not to talk to me because the the government agency is trying to get my client to stop talking about what they know. That's bizarre because how in the world would a government agency control a dog and all, and how would a dog know and how would a dog talk to me? It, so it's bizarre. It's implausible. It's not understandable. The same culture peers, he, in his culture, there no, no one else in his culture would have said that that was normal. It's not a culturally sanctioned response pattern to a stress like a death or something. And it caused a lot of distress for him. He was very anxious about it. He would talk quietly. He felt like he couldn't tell me what was on his mind because the dog was hearing everything he was saying. And so it fit absolutely the criteria of a delusion. Now let's look at believing that Jesus is hugging you or that you're able to hear God or something. Well, this is an untestable belief. Uh, depending on your belief system, there are plenty of people that would point to this and say, yeah, absolutely, Jesus can hug you and you can hear the word of God. And other people would say, that's absurd. You're, you're delusional. It doesn't make any sense. There's no way to test that, you know, that claim. So, you know, we can go down those roads, but it's completely understandable to same culture peers. If you believe that you can hear God 
and other people within your religious circle believe that too, then there's we wouldn't define that as delusion, even though to some people it might seem bizarre and implausible and uh, not likely. Uh, it's a culturally sanctioned response pattern, right? Okay, so the DSM does go into that, but it is fairly, it's, a, it's kind of a squishy area. Having said that, most people who have schizophrenia or suffer from some other delusional disorder are clearly suffering from something. And we're not usually wondering like, huh, is this a religious thing or, you know, what's going on here? No, the, when you treat someone with schizophrenia, when you treat someone with psychotic depression or psychotic bipolar, there is no doubt that something is wrong. It, there's no question of, hmm, is this a cultural thing? You know, what's going on here? The only times where it might come into play is if you're talking with someone from a very different culture than yours, and they start talking about some religious belief that doesn't make any sense to you, and then you're like, wait, is this person schizophrenic? And then you start to ask questions, and you quickly realize, oh, no, generally speaking, this person is connected to reality. So I'm guessing that that belief must be uh, some cultural aspect that I don't share that, you know, in my culture. All right. So let's go on to your other question here of, you know, cult versus religious. So your question was, what's the difference between the psychology of someone in a cult or someone who is religious? So that'd be a long discussion of the psychology of someone in a cult or someone who's religious, but just talking about cult versus religion, it dep and depends on, on the definitions and, and how they're applied. Um, the online and even on this podcast, there have been discussions of cult without properly defining. What do you mean by cult? What do you mean by religion? People tend to use the word cult today, and they didn't use, use – it's just interesting. You know, you turn 50 and you start to – you're, you've lived long enough to see culture, your own culture change in the same way that, that, you know, the word limerence and other sorts of words have changed in my lifetime or are threatening to be changed. The word cult has also changed in my lifetime. There was a time when I was younger, the word cult was only given to things like the the Jonestown, was it Jonestown massacre? Or, you know, these very severe groups of people that were clearly a cult. And now the word cult is thrown around in so many different ways. And I think one of the reasons why is because a lack of clear definition, even within the clinical literature, but also that people are on the internet or whatever, just being exposed to more micro groups of cultures and want to call it something and they want to call it something pejorative and they think of the word cult as pejorative and so they just apply the word cult and there's all these debates online you know is christianity a cult or not or is the republican party a cult or not and people say absolutely it's a cult and usually it's because they just don't like the republicans and so they just want to call it something that is negative, but the word cult is not necessarily negative. And so let's go into uh, the definitions here. So there are two main definitions. One is, is that a, a, this is the non-pejorative usage of the term that really dominated for many centuries, by the way, 
is that it's a social group that is defined by its common interest in a particular thing, like a personality, an object, or a goal. So you could consider Christianity the cult of Jesus. You could consider people who like Donald Trump to be the cult of Trump. You could consider uh, y'all who are listening to be cults of this podcast or cults of psychology or something. And so in this usage, it's not pejorative. It's not negative. It's just uh, a group of people who are defined by their common interest in a particular thing, whether it's this podcast or Donald Trump or Jesus or the field of psychology or Star Wars. You know, there's a, there's a cult of Star Wars. And it's hard to divorce the word cult from negative in today's parlance. But I encourage you to understand at least that some people, when they use the word cult, especially in literature, it's just a definition of essentially nerds. You, you know, you have – you all know nerds of, of Star Wars or nerds of Star Trek, and we call them Trekkies. Well, you'd call these – this group of people, they just – they have a common interest, a pretty strong common interest about Star Trek. And so they're a cult of Star Trek. It's not pejorative. It's fine. Could even be a good thing. You could, have a, you could have a cult of compassion or something. The other usage, which is in the literature as well, and this is why everyone gets all kind of discombobulated, is that it also is defined as a social group that is defined by its unusual religious or spiritual or philosophical beliefs. So this is, you know, you're if you're uh, someone who is a Scientologist, for example. Well, Scientology is. Again, how do you define unusual? Well, I don't know. I think most people would define Scientology as at least uncommon. It's not a common thing. It's very common to be a Christian. It's very common to be Muslim. It's very common to be Buddhist. It's not common to be a Scientologist, and so it, you could consider it to be an unusual religion, and so therefore it's a cult. Now, you notice it's still not pejorative. It's just unusual, just a small little thing. Or the Branch Davidians, David Koresh, or KKK. These are obviously negative things, but I'm giving those examples as unusual belief systems that they don't necessarily uh, are shared with the with the broader culture. You could have in this definition a – well, I guess the cult of the podcast still kind of applies here because this podcast is a small thing and so – uh, and one could say that the kind of stuff I talk about sometimes is a little unusual, uh, given that it goes against the grain mainstream-wise anyway. So you could say that this is an unusual – this is a group that is defined by unusual beliefs about compassion and about not pathologizing everyone and by using words correctly. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'm just patting myself on the back. But – um, so in no now there are other definitions of cults that people will that go into of they'll they actually have criteria of cults and I don't have them before me but they will define a cult as something that attempts to brainwash people that uses uh, emotional coercion to stamp out individuality by cutting off their access to their friends and family because they want power that the cult will demand that everyone hand over all their power and individuality to the leader, that the leader knows everything. You know, there's, there are commonalities among among these groups that are often called cults that 
we would also use the word cult for. Okay, so there are basically three different definitions there, right? So you have a group that just has a common interest, so the cult of psychology, or a group that has an unusual belief system, like the cult of Scientology. Or you have a group that is very harmful to people. One could very much argue the cult of Scientology. Or a, a, a group of people that basically eliminates individuality and will brainwash people into handing over all their you know, possessions and their, even their belief system over. And you know the David Koresh Branch Davidians, you could make an argument for um, other kinds of cults like the Nexium cult, I suppose, the the small people that were not in the general population of the Nexium. But uh, anyway, you could even say the general population, depending on what you're saying, right? Are we talking about a common interest group? Are we talking about an unusual group? Or are we talking about a high control group? And so this is why I don't like the word cult. I, I try not to use the word cult because it applies to way too many things in, in the scientific literature and in society. And so when you ask, you know, what's the difference between someone in a cult and someone who is religious? Well, I, the beholder, uh, is a Christian in a cult or are they religious? Well, it depends on the definition you're using for religious or cult. Depends on how you apply Christianity to that definition depends on how you feel about Christianity and it okay you know people can have those discussions but what I don't like is everyone thinking that scientifically it's been proven that Christianity is a cult <laughs> it's like you understand that it's not possible there's no there's no blood test for what is a cult it, it's pretty like for example a Scientology for example or um, What's one that often comes up? The um, Jehovah Witnesses, for example. Uh, these two groups, you'll find people that are adamantly saying that these groups are absolutely a destructive cult. And you'll find other people that say, no, it's it's just a group of people that believe in something. It's It's not destructive at all. Can there be destruction in it? Yeah, there's plenty of anecdotes. There's plenty of people that will claim that Christianity – destroy their lives. There's probably people out there who think this podcast has destroyed their life in some way. I don't know. So, you know, anecdote of harm isn't necessarily a criteria or isn't a scientific definition of what a cult is or not. I, so it, now, does this mean we just don't evaluate these organizations and, and religions and podcasts? No, we absolutely should scrutinize and look at these things and look how they're affecting society and look how they're affecting the individuals and try to make sure that these organizations are moving towards the greater good or at least neutral and that they're not destroying people's lives, that they're not um, affecting people in negative ways. Does Scientology affect people in negative ways? Clearly. Clear, I've seen the documentaries. I've talked to people. I've had, I've had guests on this show before who have been in Scientology before and have you know, told me about all sorts of terrible things that happens. Can people be harmed by Christianity? Yes. Can people be harmed by being a Jehovah, Jehovah Witness? Yes. Can, can people be in Scientology and enjoy it and not experience much harm at all? Yeah, absolutely. So it, it's not like it's not complicated. <laughs> um, now, 
the bigger picture here is that there are a lot of people suffering right now by exploitation and high control, whether that's by an organization like Scientology or Jehovah Witness or something else, or in a relationship like an intimate partner violence relationship like a marriage. And we need to advocate for those people. We need to reach out to them. We need to educate the public about how to help people in general. We need to create more systems to protect these people without a doubt. But whether we call these things cults or religions, you know, I, I don't – I feel like people get bogged down in these words instead of focusing on what we should be, which is to help the victims in any context, to have the power to get away, to protect themselves, to, you know, take down these organizations when they need to or take down particular individuals in these organizations when they deserve to be taken down. That we can all agree on, right? We don't have to necessarily agree on whether or not something is a cult or not. All righty then. That ends that episode. And everyone out there, please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really, really do. 